Hi, this is Steve Markadon, and it is Tuesday, July 27, 2010, and welcome to the Future of Education. Our special guest tonight is Lawrence Peters. Lawrence, thanks for getting here. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks, Steve, very much. I appreciate it. Oh, the appreciation is all mine, I assure you. <laughs> Future of Education okay. is sponsored by my employer, Illuminate, and the LearnCentral.org social network for educators that we run there. It is free. It does have a lot of fun features. We hope you'll come join us. Uh, very apropos to tonight's session, we have announced our Global Education Conference in November, November 15th to 19th, 2010. Multiple time zones, multiple languages, multiple tracks, and all for free. Lucy Gray and I are co-chairing that event. We have some great partners, uh, organizations that are partnering on that. It should be just brilliant. The focus is going to be on participation. We're hoping to get presentations from all over the world. So please come to globaleducationconference.com and hopefully you'll be paying attention to some fun announcements coming up. Tomorrow on the Future of Education, I'm interviewing Sam Chaltain on Democratic Learning Communities. I have got to tell you, his book has just kept me thinking all week. Uh, well worth it if you're available tomorrow night. And then on Thursday, Peggy Sheehy and Lucas Gillespie on World of Warcraft and Learning with Teens. Massively multiplayer online gaming should be very fun. Uh, next week, Milton Chen from Edutopia on his book, Education Nation, and you can see the other events coming up. If you've missed a session, and Lawrence, I'm going to turn your mic off for just a second because we can hear your chair squeaking there, and when you're ready, you can click it back on. If you've missed a session, we encourage you to listen to the recordings. They're all up at futureofeducation.com, including last week's a relatively fascinating interview with Jim Bach on unschooling, uh, Graham Glass on EDU 2.0, Nero uh, Kosla on their digital uh, textbook initiative, open source digital textbook initiative. So hopefully something there that's fun for you, including I've put in highlight there John Taylor Gatto. That one has just really stuck with me. Part of, uh, part of the thought process I've been having about the stories we tell in education and how the stories are changing. If this is your first time at Illuminate, then we encourage you to participate. There are a number of ways to do so. Don't let that slide confuse you. At the bottom of the participant window, you'll see a smiley face, a clapping hand, confused look, or a thumbs down. You can click on those and express your feelings at any given point in time. You can put something into the chat if you're interested in making a comment. It helps to go up to view layouts and switch to the wide layout to see that chat a little bit more easily. I'm also going to let you um, manage the, uh, make a change to your whiteboard here. You should now, to the left of the whiteboard, see some little icons, including a laser pointer. That's a wand with a star at the end. Click on that, and then click on the map, and let us know where you're listening from. Hopefully, we have some global participation tonight, given the topic. Dave, thanks for projecting the session. Welcome to your grad class. We'll consider, you can put a big star there to indicate lots of people. Look at that. Australia, Brazil, looks like Peru is my geography correct there, below Peru. Yeah, Lima, Peru. And do feel free to shout out in the chat so you don't embarrass me if I'm not sure of what country that is. Looks like India. Mexico, New Zealand, South Australia, Montana, Chicago. What a lot of fun. 
Good, a good diverse group. So Kelly, Carrie, you click on the wand with the red star at the end, and then you click on the map, and it will put you on the map. And some people have been creative there, putting smiley faces, big stars. Looks like Hawaii. Well, wherever you're listening from, or if you're listening to our recording, we're sure glad that you have chosen to spend some time with us tonight. Okay, so we're going to move on. So Lawrence, I have to tell you that uh, part of the genesis of the idea for doing the Global Education Conference was encountering your book. And it was about the same time that I found uh, the book, which is published by ESD. And you're going to need to turn your mic back on. I turned it off while you were moving around there. It's the large microphone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Perfect. So I found your book, and then I was at a COSIN session, uh, Consortium for School Networking All Day uh, session on global education. And I watched all the speakers, and I realized I knew everybody. Or if I didn't know them, I was very anxious to, to meet them. And I said to the people at the table around me, you know, has anybody done a, you know, sort of a large online conference on global education? They said, that would be a great idea. So I'm curious to hear from you, what about the idea of global education has really gelled in this last year, aside from your booking? <coughs> but what are the factors that have really made this such a pertinent discussion? Well, uh, <coughs> I love this question. Are you, can you hear me right? Perfectly. Good. Um, so I think it's President Obama, and I think it's the awareness that is really in the consciousness now that uh, we have a president with a very unique background, uh, our first global president, and um, among many firsts that he's achieved. Now, I don't want to go too crazy about Obama. I know you can get uh, go a little overboard, but... Um, uh, he really, uh, I think the Cairo speech uh, was, was a significant landmark in uh, the way it uh, set up a, a sort of a bookend uh, for uh, between the last president, won't go into details, but uh, who had a very, uh, let's say, America-centric view of the world, and this president, who um, obviously from his background and also his sense of what America's role needs to be now um, expressed um, a whole different orientation to the world. And one of the, the key elements that I actually wrote about in an eSchool news piece was um, on, uh, what is it, the 40th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall, um, that um, um, lost my train for a second. Oh yeah, that he, he talked about connecting students in the Muslim world with students in, in the U.S. That he gave a precise example of how uh, cultural understanding would be pretty furthered if uh, you had a student in Cairo and a student in Kansas connecting. Now, uh, he um, uh, seemed to approach this question as something to encourage these kinds of connections, whereas in fact, we know, well, we've had IEARN. I don't know how many of the people who are listening this evening have heard of IEARN. We have ePALS. We have a number of these other groups that have been going for close on 20 years and um, 
have really uh, expanded the opportunities that schools have now to become global. So, I mean, in, in summary answer to your question, it's really, uh, I think, the, uh, the, the combination of uh, particularly uh, our new president and the uh, maturation of, of the technologies that now exist. Um, so those are the things I would point to. So I, I, uh, um, I have a lot of agreement with you. And in particular, I'm interested in the role that Skype has played. Because I feel like for many of us personally, Skype has uh, sort of leapfrogged our ability to think about communicating. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, Skype, I think, is so flexible and so useful uh, for, for, for schools. And, and, and um, uh, it's, it, it's free. So uh, you can connect anywhere and from any device. And so it's really expanded the world of telecommunications uh, considerably. Um, although, you know, there are other, you know, sort of rival technologies that I think are, are also good. Uh, you've got Yahoo, which has got a great little system. Uh, if people haven't used it before, I'd suggest trying it. Uh, Yahoo Messenger. And uh, I think Google's got something very similar. And a number of other players. Um, and Illuminate as well. I mean, uh, you know, uh, enable a very, very nice uh, exchange to occur free of charge. Um, so that's been a wonderful. And I think you know, part, uh, an answer to your first question as well, uh, these, these technologies have become far more robust. And they're kind of hitting their stride now. And, and as they become more robust, they become better known and better used. And uh, uh, people accept that they can become part of a, of a classroom environment. So I got an email this week from someone who wanted to know what time are your session was tonight in Central Time. And it, it kind of gave me pause. I sat and thought, I've become so familiar with time zones, I have a hard time even imagining not being able to sort of intuitively figure that out, at least within your own country. But even more, I find that I'm beginning to be able to sort of know, not think through, but kind of know, okay, what time is it in Australia, or what time it is in mm. Europe? And it feels like that's very new, um, and intriguingly um, kind of exciting to think that we actually are thinking about what time it is in other places of the world very proactively. Oh yeah. Um, so I, you know, th this so underlines my point, which is that you need to get into this world. It, it, it may be new. It may be, um, you know, somewhat challenging to to figure out how it fits into a sort of standard curriculum and a standard kind of way of doing business as a teacher. But um, these kinds of questions are, um, you know, come up now um, once you get started um, and make a connection with uh, a classroom uh, halfway around the world. The time zone issue becomes very important. Um, and students then start asking questions that seem to come from a different part of their brain. Um, what time is it in Australia? You know, uh, is 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 a, a student question, and it's more than just asking what the time is. If you know what I mean, there's another uh, side to that question, which is I care what time it is in Australia. Australia has a meaning to me outside of just the name Australia. If you see what I mean. Absolutely. So I can. When I was involved in the, the startup of Learn Central for Illuminate, 
I can remember really having really fighting for an easy ability to see what time it is for any of your connections. I wanted I wanted the user, the, the educator, to be able to, to look at one of their contacts and have it show what time it is in that contact's local time zone. And and more and more I feel like we're in a place where we're actually, you know, connecting 24-7 with colleagues and, and trading information. Um, I put your slides up and okay. I want to give you a chance to get rolling because we're going to have questions. Yeah. And, and yeah, we can keep it. talking afterwards. But uh, do tell us a little bit about yourself as a part of this, if you don't mind. Oh, okay. Very quickly, uh, I was born in England, and um, my biography is pretty simple for about the first 27 years. Uh, I went to school in England, uh, then studied to become a teacher. I studied English and drama and became uh, a teacher in something called a six-form college. And uh, I don't know if uh, how many people know what a six-form college is, but um, it's a peculiarly British institution that allows uh, students from 16 to uh, 17, 18 to um, take a combination of uh, GCE, GCSE now, and O and A levels and so forth, uh, which uh, now um, have been replaced by a whole new set of exams. But um, essentially to get away from the traditional school where uh, you have to wear a uniform and you have to obey certain kinds of rules and so forth. It's a more flexible system, more, more like a junior college. Anyway, uh, I left the uh, UK to study in the uh, University of Michigan, took my doctorate there, uh, spent two years in Ann Arbor studying there and got very interested in a little known case called the Ann Arbor Black English case which got me interested in uh, the role of law and uh, education, and perhaps we can go through that. That took me to Washington uh, and to uh, going to law school and becoming very fascinated with uh, trying to figure out uh, a whole new approach to thinking about education policy. And uh, through a combination of some internships on the Hill and elsewhere, um, I got myself a wonderful job as a counsel to a subcommittee, a House, U.S. House subcommittee that had a special interest in education. Uh, it was called the Select Education Subcommittee. We also, in our subcommittee, had the um, good fortune to have federally funded educational research and uh, as well as educational technology as one of our sort of um, Remits, as some people say in England. Let's let's use over here the word remit, um, and um, that was so much fun. I spent six years on the Hill, and uh, it was just the time, 1989 to 93, when educational technology was coming into its own. Um, I think everybody recalls Sesame Street as being the great sort of landmark for. Uh, for education technology and know that the U.S. Department of Education was very much associated, involved, sponsoring Sesame Street. Um, it was a wonderful use of federal dollars to uh, expand the, the notion of education. And um, But when I got to the Hill, Sesame Street had kind of had its glory days and people were viewing education technology perhaps um, as something that was very much associated with television 
and not necessarily uh, connected to the emerging technology of the time, which is obviously was the PC, and uh, later the web-connected PC. Um, and uh, there was a little move afoot by a number of people to uh, try to interest the U.S. Department of Education into raising the, the level and uh, importance of educational technology uh, in the bureaucracy. And um, uh, rather than thinking that, you know, we've done it all with, with Sesame Street. There, in other words, there were new frontiers to conquer, etc. And um, so many fascinating people around at the time who are uh, really inspiring about the possibilities of educational technology, um, really transforming education. And as a teacher back in England, and uh, I had always sort of, um, you know, been a little more on the radical side, so to speak, in terms of being a little impatient with traditional uh, ways of doing business, of teacher-centered pedagogy. And I, a number of uh, ways in which I saw the possibility for, uh, for technology to take, uh, you know, that, that factory system apart and begin to re restructure it around student-centered learning. So a number of great thinkers were, were around who helped um, you know, uh, raise the consciousness, develop uh, some, some interesting legislation that um, became, um, you know, pretty central to the way that uh, you know, education then changed um, from the 90s on. And um, so we got, for example, an advisor, secretarial advisor to the uh, to education, uh, to the Secretary of Education, I say, and um, Linda Roberts was the first one to hold that position and uh, did a great job there. And um, she had worked prior to that with the Office of Technology Assessment. Anyway, I won't go into a lot of more detail about that, just to say that I was inspired. After leaving the Department of Education, I was basically a Clinton appointee uh, during that period, during the eight years from uh, 93 after I left the Hill to um, 2001. And then I became a, a director of uh, a, something called an RTEC, a Regional Technology Assistance Center, which was designed to uh, say, okay, uh, we've, we've spent about $9 billion, uh, federal government, in terms of investing in technology. Uh, what kind of structures are needed at the state level, the district level, to make use, best use of, of this investment? Uh, how might uh, technology be integrated into the curriculum? And I was, uh, there, there were 10 RTEX, Regional Technology Assistance Centers, set up under legislation called Goals 2000. And um, that, um, I was responsible for the Mid-Atlantic uh, Center that was based at Temple University in Philadelphia. And so we had about six states in the Mid-Atlantic that uh, we were responsible for, and we provided professional development, strategic advice to state, uh, uh, to the education technology uh, directors, uh, various workshops, uh, various products we produced uh, related to things like special education, universal design, um, safety, uh, the use of, uh, safe use of the internet. Um, all kinds of um, ways in which we were infusing uh, and integrating um, uh, research-based approaches 
to uh, the best use of technology. And so that was a, uh, a five-year program. And then uh, at the end of that, I joined a group called the uh, nonprofit called the National Education Foundation, which is responsible for uh, closing the digital divide. I had written a book with uh, the, the CEO, the, the chairman of that uh, group, um, Dr. Kutan, um, which was called From Digital Divide to Digital Opportunity. And we both saw a need for a, a global perspective on the digital divide. This was around the 1990s where the U.S. was kind of struggling about how it was going to close that divide, which was very real and, and um, very visible in some inner cities um, at um, circa 1998, 1999, 2000. So, um, and then um, I'd also contributed a to a conference called Scaling Up Success about how you scale up technology innovation. But um, that's briefly, I hope very briefly, the background. Now I'll go on to taking, uh, taking the, uh, the slides and trying to get into why, um, how I got into the, the book itself, you know, which uh, you started off with, Steve, uh, the um, um, Global education using technology to bring the uh, bring the world to your classroom. So um, let's go with the first slide. Do I move it? Yeah, I think I can move it from here, right? Okay. No, come. Okay. So you went all the way to the end. I'm going to bring this back and get you there. Okay. Sorry. That's okay. So sorry. just look for the single arrow, okay. and there you go. Okay, so top five reasons to become a global educator. This is sort of Letterman style. I don't think, you know, everybody on this conference call, uh, I will call it a conference call podcast, probably is aware of why, but I think it's worth re-summarizing some of the key points. 20 years, uh, I think the world has changed dramatically. Um, a lot of people are in bubbles about that. I think people haven't realized or recognized the uh, swiftness of the, the transformation. I think it's as critical a period in our history as any period uh, that I can remember, or that, uh, you know, history, arguably a very critical period, in that, um, uh, I mean, we can go into detail about that. Um, and, and, because of the changes, we can no longer afford to prepare people along 20th century lines. And most of the issues that I think students are going to confront in the 21st century are going to be global. They're going to require new kinds of skills and awarenesses if we're going to solve them successfully. And I think the other issue is that students are bombarded with this new world. It's cable news. It's internet. It's, it's um, uh, transformations that occur in one country uh, that connect us with another country. We can think about Iran and the kind of interest that people had and still have in the kind of uh, protests that were going on there, how quickly we're connected to the people inside those crowds through things like Twitter, things like Facebook. We're connected as individuals to these world problems, but when people enter the school, uh, when students enter the school, um, 
they can feel very impatient with uh, a classroom that is not really changed very much that still wants to teach the world as if there is one particular view, it's a governmental view, and uh, citizens are kind of incidental. Individuals are kind of incidental to that view. So, so those are the, some of the key points that I think uh, got me interested. Um, shall we move to the next slide? Um, yep, and you can do it. Just look for the single arrow to the right. Single arrow to the right. Okay, I get it. No, no I still do it. Still <laughs> okay. well, let me get a single there. arrow to the right doesn't work for me. I don't know. Well, you I'm just tell me how I'll move it for you. Could you move the next slide? Thank you, Steve. All right. Top four reasons to use e-learning tools. So I think they they are the best at countering the single viewpoint that I think is endemic to any institution. Uh, any institution likes to express itself through a single viewpoint. I'll, I'll argue that, but it, it's kind of interesting. Um, you know, students need to experience themselves other cultural perspectives. Now, one of my findings in the book, and uh, in, in my research, it seems to suggest that there is something that takes place when a student is connected to another student that is, and, and that helps the learning in a different way than if you were to just read about that student in a textbook or read about that country in a textbook. That there is uh, something hardwired within us that responds very clearly to a human connection. And I think that human connection can sustain itself via the technology. In other words, it does not need to necessarily be a face-to-face -face, uh, connection. It does help to see the, to hear the voice. It does help enormously to see the person talking, but that is not necessary to the whole experience. And um, the key thing to break down prejudice, break down stereotypes, break down all these kind of barriers that people have uh, about connecting to people other than themselves is for individuals to collaborate on a project. When they feel that they are participating in a common enterprise, when people are relying on them uh, to work together and they are relying on each other, there is another kind of change that occurs which is quite remarkable. And that does, um, you know, it, it, it enables the um, some kind of barrier to go down and some kind of clarity about the fact that these are other human beings very like me and that identities like you know nationhood and nationality and race and all the other kind of differences that we try to think of as important no longer become that important. That in other words we have much more to share with many more um, commonalities than there are differences. And they've got to understand that for themselves. And that's the, the point of my last point. Students become far more engaged when they own more of the experience of learning. And uh, when, um, when uh, particularly if you set an assignment and a project that um, is authentic and relates to, uh, you know, a, a, a problem or a project or a challenge or uh, a news item that's of interest. So next slide, and uh, thank you. 
And uh, I like this Robert Handy quote because um, I used his material in the past, and um, uh, it's there's one useful essay that I do refer to in the book, um, and it has in its title. You can easily get it from Google. Um, it's called something like um, the, the the developmental perspective on multiple perspectives, um, and um, you know it, it it's not that. Um, I mean, if you if you if you if you read it that way, the recognition that our view of the world is not universally shared, that this view of the world has been has been and continues to be shaped by influences that often escape conscious detection, and that others have views of the world that are profoundly different from one's own. If you just say that, it seems very obvious. But how often do we act and talk, and you know, in small ways, as if that's not the case? That there is just you know our view, and other people kind of have you know kind of slow to develop and understand what is after all not just our view but the best view. And um, I think it's a very easy kind of habit to fall into if you're surrounded by a media culture that reinforces that. But the real uh, strength of global approaches is that you can get yourself out of that. And by getting yourself out of that, uh, by not taking that uni uh, perspective for granted, that single perspective for granted, you can actually be a better able to solve and, and understand how problems arise and how they can be solved. Um, next slide, please. And there are lots of barriers, as we know, to beginning. And, and a lot of people do sense that, well, it's not, you know, I mean, the usual excuses are. I can't do this because there are a lot of firewalls here. We don't allow the internet. We don't uh, allow students to use the internet unless there are some very, very uh, restricted uh, sites that they they're, they're able to access. Now, I will explain in the next slides that there are some some uh, ways in which you go to educational uh, organizations such as IRN, such as ePals, that have pretty much figured out the security issues and the firewall issues. So uh, we'll talk, talk about that in the next segment, so to speak. The technophobia, the lack of training, my sense is that now uh, we have uh, a whole new generation of teachers coming into the classroom where that's not such an issue. Uh, and, um, um, uh, and, and the second reason why I think that, that barrier can be broken is the web 2.0 tools that we're talking about uh, now are uh, extremely intuitive. Um, uh, they, they've gotten so good at, um, I mean, uh, making them simple, like Skype, that they are, they're ubiquitous and then people are not so much threatened by them as want to try them, excited about trying, trying them. Um, now, I think a third fear is, is that teachers will lose control of this is, is a real one as well. Um, and when we feel like we're losing control as teachers, we prefer a teacher-based pedagogy for obvious reasons. Um, we've got to, we've just got to lose that fear. We've got to realize that, you know, I think there's a great quote out there about, um, you know, uh, school is where adults go to learn. You know, we should replace that with students, uh, you know, that it, it's where students go to, go to learn. 
adults go to learn there because they're doing all the talking like I'm doing it now and I'm learning a lot about trying to connect these ideas together and uh, hopefully you know I can um, keep this PowerPoint slideshow short so we can actually do some, some I mean um, you know do some common learning and I love the fact that we've got on the sidebar there you've got all that you know great discussion going on which is which is really great um, things are getting sparked and ideas are, are passing among the participants and that's that's the way should, things should be um, and then the last one uh, is it's not on the test now increasingly and what I found in my book is that uh, the standards movement is in fact incorporating the uh, our global uh, perspectives and I think we'll, we'll, we'll show that uh, as well and I think some of the groups like EPALS and IEARN are aware of uh, teachers uh, needs and interests in terms of being able to connect their work to, to standards so those are um, very much um, in their uh, mind when they uh, set up assignments or suggest or recommend readings. Next slide, please, uh, Steve. Thanks. Okay, so um, I'm going to be moving faster through these now. Uh, the security issues I've tell, dealt with, the technophobia issues I've dealt with, um, and uh, the standards issues. So we can move on to the next slide and talk about. Um, yeah, my book is where uh, I give you simple ways of get, getting started. I talk about some of the history behind some of the uh, some of the approaches, and uh, there's some lesson plans there, uh, as well as connecting to the standards. Let's skip to the next slide. And well, this is what a, a really interesting one I found. Uh, I, I got this from Mary Merrifield, who I met with um, uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, and she is the dean, if people don't know her, of, of this whole field. And I'm very, very impressed with you know, a whole body of work which has moved us forward in global education. She has been terrific. Um, and this is one of the, the, the sort of uh, diagrams that she's used. Uh, it's sort of the iceberg notion of culture. And if, not, if people are not familiar with it, I think it's a very good um, way of um, connecting to um, the concepts, the underlying concepts that we're talking about here, that um, the surface culture is really the, 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 the subject of the textbook world and the teacher-controlled world. We point things out. We say, yeah, that's wonderful Renaissance architecture. Don't you see the Moorish influence there um, on some of those buildings? We talk about some of the customs and the dresses and some of the food and ethnic foods. Perhaps we have a, uh, you know, a food, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, kind of some kind of uh, event at the school where we show ethnic food and we have some music. Um, we use decoration. That's fine, and and that's great, and and we need surface. You always need surface, but you always have to remember that surface is surface and there is an in interesting world underneath, perhaps a more complicated and deeper kind of world underneath the surface. And very few of us get into the, into the deeper area. And what is that deeper area? What is that internal culture that we should be uh, thinking about? Well, it's uh, the whole area of beliefs and values. Very hard to, to get at using traditional methods. Um, the way people interpret events, the, 
uh, around the world, the way people have interpreted Middle East uh, events uh, of recent years, the way people look at uh, the North-South issues, are all very, very complicated and not easily summarized. And they're, they're, they're um, open to interpretation. Sometimes you can generalize among different cultures. Sometimes you know, each country's got a very singular attitude and approach. Um, but uh, my argument would be that um, we need to experience those things for ourselves if we're really going to understand that internal culture. We really need to have students connect with people, with their counterparts, and they need to engage in these issues if they're going to get to that deeper level. So I like to um, I would like to us to come back to that when we get into this, this discussion, how we might kind of uh, think about that. Next slide, please, Steve. And um, the suggested ways to start to explore the world, I, you know, I don't know, and we'll find out in a little while how far people are along, but it seems from some of the sidebar discussion that people are quite far along with, with uh, certain projects. But I, I, I favor starting simply with uh, around an existing curriculum interest. A pen pal could be a very basic way of connecting uh, one student to the other. Um, and a lot of time should be spent, or, or a significant amount of time, should be spent, maybe two or three weeks in a semester of 16 weeks or so. Uh, three of those weeks, I would suggest, would be on work that tries to get the students to, under, to connect with each other on very basic terms. You know, what sports do you like? What films have you seen? What kind of food do you like? Um, very basic, neutral, but interesting questions that try to um, get at the, the commonalities, as we talked about, uh, between kids, surprising a number of them, even for, uh, as we know, the kids who are from very different backgrounds, very different parts of the world. Um, and so uh, there's about three ways that I think, there may be many more large ways of thinking about global connections. One through your own connections with other teachers. And I know it sounds like uh, teachers know each other, uh, educators know each other here. Um, focusing, you may have a focus on one country, and that's fine, and there are ways to connect that way. Uh, I'll talk about that. And connecting with, through, a, through a project that you have. Uh, maybe it's a fundraising project. Maybe it's, uh, it's a project related to global warming. Maybe it's a project that involves uh, some community action of some kind. Uh, next slide, please. Okay, and so I'm I'm plugging four four sites. There are multiples, and I list many many more in my book. Uh, but um, you should get to know these uh, at a very minimum. Uh, not to say that they're the best, but I think they are really have been there at the beginning. Uh, many of them. And I personally interviewed uh, each one of them, the, the founders of each one. And um, I really like their approaches. Um, and so next slide, please. Um, so there's a spectrum to move across. Clearly, these are some tools you can use. Uh, we've got you know, um, blogs. We've got email. 
I like to, uh, in my book, um, a lot of people say, well, I don't have all the technology. And maybe you're from part of the world, I know that Steve just went through some of the parts of the world that you know, are represented here in this conference. You may find that you know, the kind of ratio of uh, students to computers is not ideal. It's not one to four. It, maybe you have one internet connected computer in your classroom. My argument is that you can still be a global classroom. Uh, with just one computer that's internet connected. You don't have to have everybody online. And I, and I think um, I want to illustrate that point by talking about one of the founders of this whole movement who I talk about in the book. Um, his name is uh, uh, Celestine Freinet, F-R-E-I-N-E-A-T. Uh, well known in France and um, many of the European countries, but virtually unknown in the US. Um, he was a primary school teacher in the uh, early part of the 20th century um, and um, was conscripted, I think, into the First World War and uh, was horribly injured through uh, being poisoned by poison gas. Uh, his lungs were completely uh, ruined. And he found when he got back uh, that he couldn't speak very well to his classroom and devised an entirely new system as a result of connecting with his students that uh, he purchased a, a printing press for them. He also used the technology of the time, which was the US, uh, not the US, the, the French Postal Service, and sent packages to neighboring villages um, that were basically collections of cultural artifacts that um, they were to write on for the little magazine and newspapers that they were going to send to each other. And there you have, I think, uh, so, so I, I would encourage people to, to, to check him out and look him up, Freinet. Uh, first person, I think, I think he's the granddaddy of this whole movement in myself. Um, and um, so you can do it with, with very low technology. And it just requires the imagination to, con to, to think of ways in which you can engage students in a really um, thoughtful way. Uh, so next slide, please. So the one I go to first is ePals. I don't know if people can see it. It's a little misty there. But uh, you'll see the heading. The pro it, 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 it's basically organized by project. And so there are various projects. At uh, pitched at various grade levels. EPALS tends to be more elementary and middle school. But um, uh, they have projects on digital storytelling. And um, there are certain ways in which they frame the question, the frame some, some, some good opening questions that you can work on, essential questions you can work on uh, with, uh, in a collaborative environment. And there are schools that are currently working across the world on you know, how you tell digital stories. And you can press one of those buttons, and you can immediately connect with the school. Now, I don't think there's an easier way of, of getting started than through ePALS. But if you don't like that approach, Steve, do uh, the next slide, you can, in fact, uh, go through, this is one on global warming. I mean, they've got many, many common uh, themes and project ideas. You can go to the ne next slide. You can connect through people. Uh, it's a sort of Craigslist for, uh, for educators. Here are 
educators from around the world who are available now for projects that they want to cook up with other teachers for projects. And if you turn to the next slide, you'll see one particular request that uh, is just chosen at random. Hi, my name is Sylvain. I'm a teacher at a primary school in Paris, France. Uh, and I think basically she, she's teaching 11-year-olds. Uh, they're interested in learning English. We would love to set up exchanges with English pupils in order to have uh, to learn about, yeah, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, what a great, easy way to start. Um, so next slide, because I'm conscious of the time element. And uh, there's bulletin boards you can use. I mean, they've got it pretty much all figured out. The, the, it's a learning management system of a kind that they have there. Um, next slide, please. And you can correspond. You can use that forum uh, to connect securely with another teacher, uh, asking them questions uh, so you're sure about where you're going with your project and so forth. Next slide, please. And uh, then I earned, which I think is pitched at slightly older uh, age range, and probably, um, and it, I think its strength is uh, country-focused projects because they've spent a great deal on um, basically having uh, country facilitators, project facilitators, country facilitators in the country itself, and who organize projects between countries. Uh, they have the forums, they have the projects, just like ePals. But one of the ways into IRN is to say, well, I'm interested in Pakistan. I happened to interview somebody from, who is the IRN coordinator for Pakistan. She would be glad to work with you to figure out how you know, best to facilitate an exchange with those, those students in, in Pakistan, for example. Uh, depending on the project, the size, and the scope, etc. Uh, next slide, please. And um, we have a, uh, again, similar sort of design to ePals, the different projects. I think there are about 300 of these different projects. And what's good about them is they have their own websites. You can see the material that's been produced in the past. You can get a sense of what's expected. You can ex get a sense of the kind of ex challenge that might be there for, for your, for, for your uh, students, and so on. Next slide, please. 200 project choices. OK, so and then you can search them alphabetically pretty easily. Um, next slide, please. Um, and here, you've got a more detailed than ePals, more geared to high schools. So the, 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 the descriptions, the facility, you see the facilitator on the right side in the country, uh, and, and the student age level, and the related links, just as I've been telling you there. Uh, next slide. Uh, Global Schoolhouse is good. It has all the features of the other ones, but it also has some very interesting projects. Uh, that are competitions in the form of competitions. And this is mainly, I think, for US based, but I'm not sure. There may be some ones that are internationally based, but um, such as uh, a project that's sponsored by the uh, US State Department. They work closely with Global Schoolhouse. Next slide, please. And it's called, um, oh, that's a, that's a search engine that they have. So you can search through keywords, what projects you might be interested in, in working on and collaborating with. Um, next slide, please. Uh, yeah, this is it. Uh, doors to Diplomacy. 
fabulously challenging uh, competition sponsored by the U.S. State Department to recognize student-created global school, um, um, school web projects. Uh, they asked the things like, you know, how would you solve uh, issues around HIV in um, various different countries? What approaches have been the most successful and how might they be better uh, managed to be more effective? I mean, asking some authentic questions that require primary research, often require conversations with experts that can only be managed through Web 2.0 tools. Um, so uh, I urge you to take a look at there. Um, so I'm at 33 or 38 slides. If you could go to the next one, we can get five done. I love Global Nomads. Global Nomads was really set up after, uh, came into its own after 9-11. They had a whole really unique approach. Um, just a bunch of students who had met at um, the International University in Paris. Um, and decided that their education was so unique and so important to them that they decided that they wanted to set up a kind of foundation, uh, a group that could um, enable students to recognize and realize the kind of great international uh, perspectives that they had managed to gather through their time at this university. And so they set up a way in which Students from around the world could could use video conferencing, which was a technology just coming to its own at the time that they were meeting and planning this. And um, but interactive video conferencing, video conferencing at this time and still is a pretty uh, high-end type of um, communication device, used usually reserved for governments and reserved for corporate heads. Uh, the idea of having video, high-quality video conferencing available to students was just a, an amazingly um, far-reaching idea. What it allowed was the students in the U.S., primarily they had students in the U.S., connect with students in places like um, Jordan, places like Beirut, Lebanon, places like Somalia, places in Iraq, uh, and, and, and they would have facilitators. Uh, very experienced people talk about issues related to uh, Middle East peace, talking about global development, talking about HIV, talking about very, very sort of cutting edge issues without you know thinking somehow students were not able to grasp these these complicated world problems. They were treating them as adults. Obviously, it's much more geared to a high school uh, group. But I urge you to take a look at Global Nomads. Really, then they did it on such a shoestring. And all these groups are working on such a shoestring budget. It's amazing how much, they, how much value they've been able to add and create for, for, for people. And yet, when I go around and talk to educators, it's a, a, so many people have not heard. The majority, the vast majority have not heard about these groups. So um, we're on 34, next slide please. So the summary, start modestly, build confidence. It's very important to build confidence in the technology as well as the students' ability to connect with other students. Follow your interests, follow their interests. Um, perhaps take a few um, soundings as to where they are, what they want to learn next. 
and why uh, they are so curious about certain aspects of the world. It is going to make a difference. Any of these kind of connections is going to make almost, I would say, a chemical difference to the brains in your, <laughs> to any brain um, that is in, exposed to it. Uh, it really does. Um, and the next slide, please. And oh, that's me. Okay, so we're at the end now. Um, and uh, I look forward, really look forward to talking with this group and getting uh, getting your sense of what what we need to do next to move this cause forward. But thank you very much for being so patient. Okay, so I'm clapping for you. I'm using a little hand, the clapping icon. Really appreciated the first part of that. I have to tell you, I wasn't necessarily expecting it and thought it was. Uh, uh, very helpful to hear the, the sort of deeper rationale. Hey, one question that did come up several times that you may or may not have noticed was the feeling that this is working better in K-12 than it's actually working at the college level. And have you seen any projects where it's they're geared toward college level? I have not really. Um, that's a great question, um, and uh, you know, I think the, the the ones I've come across, if my brain is now starting to trigger, um, are simulations. You know, there's a great Middle East peace project at the University of Michigan where people are expected to role play various uh, different, and they they study the the different aspects of the Middle East and and so on. Um, let me see. Um, very, very limited after that, after the world of simulations. I, my brain is drawing a blank. Sounds like somebody could take uh, a little bit of initiative and create a wiki and there might be some value in that. Okay, so if you'd like to ask Lawrence a question, we've got about four minutes left. You can either put it in the chat or you can raise your hand, which you do by clicking on the hand with the green up arrow, and then we'll give you the microphone. Hopefully your microphone will work. If it doesn't, we'll encourage you to go up to Tools Audio and run the Audio Setup Wizard. So if you have a question for Dr. Lawrence, for Dr. Peters, please feel free to raise your hand or put it in the chat. Kay Hollis says she's here. She is happy to create a wiki for college collaborations. That'd be very fun. Hopefully, aside from the many uh, Great resources you've given tonight. The globaleducationconference.com site will provide, will begin to provide uh, links and resources of a comparable level, so people have a place there to connect. Um, and also, do want to encourage you to come to LearnCentral.org, where you can use Illuminate for free if you're doing classroom-to-classroom -classroom connections, and also begin to make those same kind of connections with other educators. So, Michael asks, what are some introductory first-timer projects a third-grade educator could create? Well, as I said, I think you don't have to come up with anything new. You can just go to ePals and you can have the a real ball there because there's so many projects to choose from. I just can't tell you. ePals is a great place to start. And it looks like Rashida has a question, and I've given you the microphone, Rashida. And if you click on the larger microphone icon at the bottom of your window, you should be able to turn your mic on. Can you hear me? We can hear you very faintly. Very faintly. Okay. Much better. Um, Much we, better. Okay, great. Um, one thing is, A, I definitely appreciate what you're doing. I've used all of those resources. And what I have found is that taking it global.org is primarily college. Oh, yeah. So that oh. there is a resource 
you know, they allow you to do collaborations and you can build a schoolroom within their environment. I think that's excellent. I, I, I totally uh, overlooked that one. Yeah. Thanks for that uh, comment, Rashida. And if anybody wants to grab that URL and put it in the uh, chat, that would be most appreciated. I'm going to advance the slide to the thank you slide. So thanks to Illuminate and Learn Central for giving me a job. Thanks to you for coming tonight. Thanks to uh, Lawrence for a terrific show tonight. Thanks to C. Bloom and Associates for a book budget to help me do the future education interview series. And don't forget, coming up tomorrow, democratic learning communities. Uh, very much in line, I think, with some of the things you were saying, Lawrence, about uh, treating students as adults. I think we're definitely yeah. going to talk about that tomorrow. Another good session. Okay, I think we have time for one final question. If anybody has one, feel free to raise your hand or put it in the chat. Nikki's asking if there's Second Life projects for higher ed, and I'll bet there are. I bet there are too. Nope, it's worth checking out. Okay, and Can Marcelo, um, go ahead, Lawrence. No, no, I'd love to keep this group uh, together because it sounds like a good group. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, uh, can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. Okay, my question is about the curriculum. Uh, I'd like to know how can we align the global education to the curriculum? For example, uh, do you think we could uh, teach math uh, together between two different cultures, two different uh, countries, and uh, talk about, for example, math? Oh, yeah. I I've seen many great projects where you can, um, you know, think about math uh, from a cross-cultural perspective and look at things like, you know, how, um, you know, different uh, cultures um, may use use uh, various different measures. Uh, you can start with the basic thing of metric versus you know uh, imperial measures. You could start with you know how um, to uh, how the Greeks and the, uh, and the and the Egyptians thought about uh, measurement and, and time and Babylonians and how those different traditions wound their way up into different cultures. So, uh, but I think that there's, there's a lot of creativity that we could, uh, could have. And, uh, and it's only up to you. It's up to, to, the, to the imaginations of math teachers to, you know, I, I think the key thing is that uh, to get out of the box of thinking that problems and issues uh, uh, somehow can be isolated and, and seen in a vacuum that you can, you can integrate things like, how about global warming? How do you measure? How do different countries who have different interests and needs start to find common measures of how they're going to reduce global warming? You know, that's a mathematical issue as much as anything else. Uh, obviously, it involves politics. But, you know, um, I guess the idea is you have to start somewhere. Start with an authentic issue. And then try to figure out what the math is involved in that, and you know, and 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 what are the other kind of global issues. I think that's a great place to stop. We could keep talking all night, uh, and I put your uh, URL link there, warrenspeters.com, so people can communicate with you directly. We've put a number of links in the chat. I'll give you a little bit of time before we leave tonight, folks, if you want to go up to File, Save, and you can save the chat conversation to get the links. Do consider coming to globaleducationconference.com. Hopefully, uh, 
Lawrence and many others who are doing uh, good work in this area will be presenting and letting you know uh, about uh, additional resources. And if you do something interesting or exciting, we hope that you'll present. Uh, feel free to email me at steve at hargadon.com. Lots of opportunities to showcase really good practices. So I'm clapping again. Lawrence, thanks so much for being here tonight. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you very much. If I can do this again for you, or there are ways in which Illuminate can be helpful, I hope you'll call on me. Thanks, everybody, for coming. Carrie, uh, go up to File, Save, and Save the Chat Conversation. What a terrific evening. So we'll give you a few minutes to, uh, to uh, finish up chatting, and then we will clear the room so that the recording can process. And again, many thanks to Lawrence. Thanks to you for coming tonight, and have a great week. Thank you, Steve. Really appreciate it. Thanks.